Good morning, RPE. Welcome. Happy Lord's Day. Happy 4th of July. It's good to see you guys. You guys doing good? Awesome. Awesome. Stu is. So I woke up Monday morning deeply depressed. I even slept in. You, you can talk to Holly. I never sleep in. But, but, but before you show too much compassion, let me, let me continue. The University of Oklahoma was playing in the College World Series finale. It was a, it was a best of three series with Old Miss. Now, I promise I'm not too crazy a sports fan. Truly, I enjoy watching the, the Dodgers and, and, and uh, the Lakers and, of course, Oklahoma football. But the OU baseball team hadn't been to the College World Series since we lost it when I was there in 2010. And I didn't realize until last weekend how much passion for Oklahoma baseball still lives inside of me. Like, if you came over to my house, you would have thought that I thought that I was in the dugout with the boys. (laughs) And I don't even know how I would have acted if if Pastor Josh, who preached here last week, and Holly and my kids weren't there to keep me accountable. Holly several times had to give me the look. Like, what are you teaching our daughters right now? And I had an all-expense-paid trip planned for Monday if OU made it to Game 3. I was going to be in Omaha with some of my old teammates, rooting for the Sooners, hoping not to get in a fight with a Mississippianite. What I wanted more than anything last weekend was an Oklahoma win. And so when OU lost on Saturday and again on Sunday, I woke up Monday morning depressed, like legit sad. Pretty pathetic, right? Unfortunately, my passions within don't stop with sports. Last Friday night should have been a precursor to where my weekend was headed. Holly and I, after we put the girls down on Friday night, are trying to spend time together outside around the campfire with the purpose to engage each other, intentional conversations, to connect on a deeper level. I realized later that, I wanted, that what I wanted most last Friday night was not intentional conversations, it was just a fun night. And so I'm not even sure why I asked Holly, how can I love you better in this season, babe? <laughs> And so, of course, because what I wanted most that evening did not line up with Holly's very gracious and loving, constructive criticism, we spent the next several hours working it out. But do passions, deep passions within, only blow up when we don't get what we want? In his wonderful confessions, St. Augustine said this, I aspired to honors money, and marriage. And if you know anything about Augustine's story, he got everything he sought after. And he was still left empty, craving more. Our men's Bible study has been in Ecclesiastes now for five weeks. King Solomon, same story. All the wealth, fame, success, sex that one could possibly imagine. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, he says. 
Solomon says, satisfaction under the sun is like chasing after the wind. Good luck. My question this morning for us, RP, is this. What do you want? What do you want? Ask yourself this question. Not what you want people to think you want, but truly in your innermost being, what do you want? Do you want recognition? To be noticed, appreciated, praised, to be liked? Do you want power? What do you want? Is it intimacy? To be known, to be loved? Maybe like many Parkerites, it's just an awesome family that's killing it on all fronts. What do you want? Money, which brings comfort and ease. Early retirement from a successful career and your forever home paid off so you can start that fun side hustle and never miss another one of your kids' games. What do you want? Every one of us has strong passions within. We all want. James is going to show us this morning that Passion or desire isn't necessarily a bad thing unless that passion makes you an enemy of God. And then James is going to show us how to get home. In our passage this morning, James is going to argue, and I pray convince us, that in a world full of disordered loves, God's friends recalibrate their hearts by drawing near to God. Let me say that again. James is going to argue this morning, and I pray convince us that in a world full of disordered loves, God's friends recalibrate their hearts by drawing near to him. So if you would, please open up your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to continue our time working through this series, The Gospel on the Ground. Today we are in chapter 4. Chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, now if you remember, a couple weeks back, Scott preached a message about the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, from the end of chapter 3. James says the wisdom from below is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. This wisdom consists of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. A few weeks back, Ryan preached on the power of the tongue, if you remember that. And how how the tongue is, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And how our tongues, James says, can stain our whole bodies setting on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell itself. This morning in chapter 4, James is going to stay within this same theme. Sinful attitudes and behaviors. But James is going to dig a little deeper so as to find out what is the cause of this bad fruit. He wants to uncover the root of of our problem. 
Look again at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James is asking this imperfect church, he's asking us this morning, what is causing conflict? His answer, end of verse 1, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This word passion or desire or even one translation, hedonisms. It's the Greek word hedone. It's where we get the English hedonism. It means pleasure or pleasure seeking. James is saying, why is there conflict in the church? Why is there disorder in your lives? Because of your disordered loves, your disordered passions, your disordered desires. You are self-serving, pleasure-seeking hedonists. This is why chaos exists. This is why I asked earlier, what do you want? The brilliant American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards said this, we will always do, we will always do what we most want to do. Unfortunately, this may have been why Edwards himself owned image bearers called slaves. But, but James would agree, we will always do what we most want to do. This is definitely the reason for conflicts in our churches and brokenness in our lives. Our desires, our passions are strong and they are at war within us. Look at verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The bride of Christ, the church, is the, the people of God called to draw the world to himself by how we live. How we love one another, by our unity, how we love our neighbor. Most likely, James here is not speaking to actual murder. Though some think he could have because there were former zealots in his church who wanted to advance God's kingdom through violence. But most likely, he's speaking of the same murder his brother talked about. Namely, hatred in the heart. Because they desire what is out of their reach. Fighting and quarreling because they covet and find themselves chasing the wind. Constantly measuring themselves up to others instead of being happy for their brothers and sisters. And thus conflict erupts. Erupts from within because of their disordered loves. Does James have any relevance today? Can you relate at all? Yeah, at least me and you can, Joe. 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza gave this indictment against Christianity when he said, I have often wondered that persons who boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily toward one another such bitter hatred that is, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. As I scroll Twitter 
and see Christians, even Christian leaders, talk about their brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't say Spinoza's quote no longer carries any weight. And before I throw stones, I must examine my own desires and see how disordered my own loves can get. What do we want? What do we want out of our marriages? Our relationship with our kids? What do we want most in life? Out of our friendships, our bank accounts? What are we craving as we anxiously spend hours scrolling our social media feeds? What do we want when we show up to church? When we choose our GCs? James is saying the chaos in our lives are due to our disordered passions. We end up not even praying the way we should. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's that word again. We are all hedonists, pleasure seekers, and the heart is the battleground for our love. So what is it that you most want? I love how British pastor Rico Tice said it. He said, we turn God into a divine waiter. He's there to deliver our daydreams to us. We touch base with him on a Sunday. We put our order in via prayer. We might give a decent tip in the collection plate, but God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need. And we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver. Ouch. Or maybe you're thinking, so what? Our loves are a bit disordered. Isn't that just life in a fallen world? Well, you know James enough that that you don't think he's just going to let us off the hook that easy, right? And let me me warn you, you might want to buckle up your seatbelt before this rebuke he's about to make. Look down at verse 4. You adulterous people. Yikes. Not the typical warm and friendly brothers and sisters. You adulterous adulterous people. And to his Jewish audience, this rebuke would have been heard loud and clear. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's unfaithful bride. In Hosea, Israel is an adulterer, a harlot. In Jeremiah, he calls her a prostitute. He says that God sent Israel away and gave her a certificate of divorce. However, in the new covenant, the people of God are now the bride of Christ. And so for James to call them adulterous people, well, that's either fighting words, like you're really comparing us to the unfaithful nation of Israel, or it's true. Like, yeah, we are kind of acting like Israel, aren't we, James? He goes on, middle of verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship in antiquity was taken much more seriously than we do friendship today. Read Aristotle on friendship. It's pretty inspiring, actually. 
Often friendship consisted in, in a lifelong pact between people. A covenant where friends were devoted to one another's flourishing. Not simply one of the 600 Facebook friends that we have. Where we get to see how amazing their meals look. How, how awesome our friends' lives are. And after hanging out with our friends, a.k.a. scrolling for about an hour, we hate ourselves. <laughs> Not in their culture. Friendship were deep relationships where you were known and knew others. It's safe to say in a place as lonely as Denver, this is not commonplace among us. These kind of friendships take time, and quite frankly, we only have capacity for a couple of these. Maybe a few. I mean, Jesus himself had three best friends, Peter, James, and John. Now, the topic of friendship is another sermon for another day. But our point in this passage is that friendship is a big deal. And James is saying to these Christians that if you think you can have sweet, intimate fellowship with God, friendship, all the while setting your heart's deepest desires on the things of the world, you're straight tripping, James says. I love Sam Alberry's comments here on this verse. He says, Will love of self draw me from God or will love of God draw me from myself will we invite God's opposition or receive his grace there is no third option no neutral place we are either friends with the world or friends with God we cannot pursue both this is a hard world if, uh, this is a hard word if you live in the same place that I do right it's easy to love the world. And maybe that question is hard to answer because, well, what the heck is the world? So I'll give you a few definitions, not my own. I think they're helpful. Philosopher Dallas Willard says the world is our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. Theologian Gary Brashears says the world is Satan's domain where his authority and value reign. Though his deception makes that hard to realize, if you are of the world, then it all seems right. Pastor John Mark Comer, in his amazing book, Live No Lie, says this, the world is this system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And finally, Eugene Peterson, who doesn't just see the world as something out there, he, he, he says rather, it's an atmosphere, a mood. <clears throat> And that atmosphere, a.k.a. the world, is the air we breathe every day. In what ways are you cozying up to the world closer than you ought to be? In what ways have the ideas and values and morals and practices and social norms of the world become the culture in your own heart and home? James says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. 
Before we just think Jesus' brother James is a little too radical for us. Like, when is Pastor Mark coming back already? Listen to how Jesus' best friend, John, the Apostle John, puts it in 1 John. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Oh Lord, show us ways that the world has colonized us. That we would turn from it. But James isn't finished. He wants to show us why friendship with the world would make us adulterers and bring us hostility with God. So look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Some people think because God has given us the, the gift of salvation, if it's truly a gift, he shouldn't expect anything in return. Like, leave us alone. Well, other than the fact that that's a, a postmodern understanding of gift giving, God does desire something from us, namely ourselves. In the garden, God formed the first human out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And thus, humanity became a living spirit. Our text says God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James here is talking about the theme of God's righteous jealousy over his image bearers. Oprah Winfrey claims she left Christianity over this idea that God is jealous. She wants nothing to do with a jealous God. Yuck. Could you imagine if I found my wife flirting with another man, showing physical and emotional affection for him, being drawn away to him, and I sat there and smiled? Perish the thought, right? God has made us for himself, and he is jealous for our worship. I mean, this is the first question to our New City Catechism we do every week. Question number one says, what is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong to God. We belong to God. And he yearns jealously for us. Like I asked the question earlier, what do you want? For some of us in here, we just want to belong. Oh, if we just realized who we already belong to. So when we make ourselves friends of the world, we are telling God through our desires and passions, we choose hostility over friendship. Committing spiritual adultery on the one who made us for himself to whom we belong. In verse 6, James starts to move toward a godly response. He says, but he gives more grace. 
arguably the five best words in scripture. He gives more grace and then he continues. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James quoting Proverbs 3.34 here and picking up on the idea of the good life from chapter 3. The humility that comes from wisdom. James is encouraging these Christians and us to receive grace through humility. But what does humility in this passage entail? Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When you submit yourself to God, this is the ultimate posture of humility. When we submit ourselves to God, this is living the good life. When we submit ourselves to God, we are rejecting our friendship with the world as we declare our allegiance to Jesus the Christ and we revel in our friendship with God. The thoughts, ideas, values, morals, practices of the world, by submitting to God, you betray the world and your old friend, the devil, and he flees from you. When you've realized you've disordered your loves, you recalibrate your heart and turn back to God. And if the Christian life is the life of repentance, repentance, which I think it is, then we will continue to have to recalibrate our hearts as we can so easily make good things God things, idols. And part of submitting to God is repentance. Look at the middle of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's that word again. James speaking to the double-souled. One foot in the kingdom of God, the other foot in the kingdom of the world. And he he says, repent. This involves both hands and heart. Attitude and action. And what does this repentance look like? Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I remember the last time I cried watching a Pixar movie. I know, I can't believe I just admitted that. I won't tell you which one. I remember just last week mourning over an Oklahoma baseball game. I must confess, it's been a long time since I wept and mourned over my own sin. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 19 and my sin was flagrant, but I wept over it. Repentance was a constant practice of mine many times throughout the day. Often tears accompanied it. A great sinner was I. But then we start to grow in some Christian maturity. Some of the big sins aren't there anymore. You still sin, but but honestly, they're quite respectable sins, at least in the church. A little gossip, slander, envy, a little hatred, hatred, 
lust, pride, buying into the ways and customs of the world. A little exaggeration never hurt nobody, right? James says, whoa, pump the brakes, slow down. You are headed in the wrong direction. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Repent. And did you notice I missed the beginning of verse 8? I said earlier that hedonism is what this passage is all about. Our deep desires within are waging war against God. But not all hedonism is bad. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Desire is not evil. It is where our desire takes us. Augustine, who we keep coming back to since this term disordered loves is his and I stole it from him. But he uses a journey as a good metaphor to what we're talking about here. He says disordered love is like falling in love with the boat rather than the destination. Desire is not evil, friends. God created us with desire. He created us with passion. But he created every single human being with a desire that will never be satisfied unless satisfied in him. Augustine, again, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. John Piper, who coined the phrase Christian hedonism, he defines it like this, and I think he's right. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What do you want? Because the deepest longings of your heart are ultimately crying out to God himself. And James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James ends our passage this morning by saying, verse 11, look down at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? These last two verses take us from the vertical to the horizontal. When we don't reorient our hearts, chaos follows in our communities. We try to play God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, thinking we know better than God. King Jesus' royal law says, love your neighbor as yourself. We say, nah, I'd rather criticize. And oh, how easy it is for us to become judge, right? I can't believe they're not homeschooling. Or where are they going on vacation? What are they spending their money on? What is she wearing? Who did they vote for? Let's not play God, church. Let's obey God by loving one another, not being the judge of one another.
like our passage says, there is only one judge. In a sense, Tupac was right after all. Only God can judge me. Unfortunately, Tupac, what he didn't understand is is that the judge is also the one who saves and destroys. Because of sin, the path we are all on apart from Christ is destruction. But the judge, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity. He came down to the world he created to die for the people he made in his image. And after he rose from the grave, Jesus, the God-man, defeated death. And now he sits at the right hand of God, reigning as Lord, King, Savior. Will you know the judge as the one who saves or as the one who destroys? And if you're not a Christian, let me ask you a question. What do you want? Like, what are you living for? How's that working out? Are you satisfied? In a world full of disordered loves, God's friends recalibrate our hearts by drawing near to God. So what's our application this morning? Draw near to God. For some of us, we hear that draw near to God and he will draw near to us. And we think about our private quiet times. And now I'm a huge fan of of private quiet times. Get alone with God. But for many of us, getting alone with God means we check that box off. Close that drawer to our compartmentalized lives and go do the next thing. Work, play, food, sex, vacation, sports, family, whatever. But what if drawing near to God didn't just mean 15 minutes in the Bible, a couple worship songs, some time in prayer before I head off to the next thing? I think James in this whole letter is most after true discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. He's already given us a few ways to draw near to God up until this point, controlling our speech, caring for the oppressed, a life of humility, wisdom, peace, prayer. Many pastors and theologians don't like the term discipleship for our context. They'd rather use apprenticeship. To be an apprentice, like we know, is to learn a skill trade, and art, whatever, under somebody else. To basically become this person whom you're apprenticing. To draw near to God, for James, is to be a Jesus apprentice. John goes so far as to say, whoever claims to be a Christian must live as Jesus lived. So yes, get alone with God. Jesus did that. But don't compartmentalize your lives. Everything Jesus did, he did unto God. So draw near to God directly as you pray and read and memorize scripture, attend Sunday services, give fellowship with one another. But draw near to God even indirectly 
when you enjoy a sunset and you can see past the beautiful red and orange beams of light to the God who's behind it all. Or draw near to God indirectly while eating some New York pizza or sipping on a legit single origin coffee. Enjoying a campfire, a good book, your family, your spouse, your friends, or even watching the Rockies turn a 6-4-3 double play. Draw near to God indirectly by being the best pilot, mom, engineer, salesman, student that you can possibly be. Drawing near to God is not a box to be checked off. It is a soul-satisfying life. Whether you eat or drink, Paul says, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Before COVID hit, I was training for a half marathon. And then the race got canceled. When the race got canceled, I stopped training. But then I got an email a year later saying that I'm still in the race for 2021. And so I tried to get motivated again. I bought some overpriced running shoes. I downloaded the running app on my phone. But the problem was I didn't run. I was not motivated. So when the race came around in Idaho Springs, I was not there because I wasn't a runner. James is saying, don't think you're a follower of Christ because you come to church twice a week. Read your Bibles occasionally. Pray to prayer when you were 15. James's readers wouldn't have even had a Bible. But James's call to them is his call to us to be a Jesus apprentice, to live like Jesus lived, to recalibrate our hearts by drawing near to God. One of my favorite theologians, Amy Bird, says it like this, there is no plateau in the Christian life. We are either drawing near to God or we are falling away. Let's recalibrate our hearts by drawing near to God. Amen? Let me pray. Oh God, if it is true that we will always do what we most want to do, oh God, make yourself what we want more than anything else. Reorder our loves, oh God. We pray like Augustine prayed, grant what thou command. You command us to draw near to yourself. Lord, by the power of your spirit in us, we ask that you would do this in us. Recalibrate our hearts that we would draw near to you, O God. Satisfy the longings of our hearts and show us that you are truly enough, that you are all we need. Help us to treasure you for who you are and to treasure you by enjoying the gifts you give us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.